This is for the nerds, this is for the brainiacs, this is what we deserve. Go ahead and play it back, you ain't gonna touch me, you not gonna do nothing, you are not above me, I bet you wish you was me, I know it, I know. The way you get him is, I says cuz, you know, you land on the river, you don't need to, you don't need to risk like that cuz. You don't have to do it. There's enough out there, don't be greedy, just... You know, bet your hand when you have it. Check back when you don't. Let's play a little nice poker. Wise words. You know what I'm saying? Welcome, everybody, to the Only Friends podcast. We have a little pre-production conversation spilling over into this one and uh, my best cousin impersonation. Uh, today, we are unfortunately not going to be joined by Herolibus, as we promised. Uh, he was in town for, uh, I'm not sure if it was for an event or something work-related, but he got called out, had to fly out this morning, wasn't able to push it back and make the pod. So uh, hopefully we'll be able to reconvene at some point in the future. But fortunately, we had a backup plan. Yeah, Harry Potter expecto patronum his way out of this podcast. I think what actually happened was he saw the Robbie interview yesterday and like just he couldn't handle it anymore. He didn't want anything to do with it. He had to, he had to be done. Could have been the Dementors. The Dementors are after him, yeah, <laughs> from prison. I don't get that reference. It's from The uh, Office from that the you office. still have yet to watch. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This is fact. You'd be the belle of the ball. Wow. <laughs> you are, you are uh, really rocking this blout fit today. That's nice. This, yeah, I went mm. with the hat so they match the white shoes. You know, fashion's more important to me these days. I mean, the hat was important just so that we could get, you know, you. Like, so you is, don't disappear. Yeah. You just sink right into you're, the, you're, nah. You're just going to disappear right into the chair. He's very monochrome. Mm -hmm. I mean, Dude, monochrome goes too. hard. Dude, we both rock in the black tees. Let's go. Yeah, you wore the chair matching uh, green sweats. Yeah, huh, <laughs> wow, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's blending in. He's camouflaging. He looks like, honestly, what he looks like is a tortoise where the chair is his shell. Mm -hmm. I got green socks on, too. <laughs> yeah, we, we got a new tortoise after Gatsby ripped the other one to shreds. Mauled it. Absolutely mauled it. Uh, that tortoise... We have way too many things that are the same color in your shot. Oh, the... The, the giant statue, the tortoise, mm -hmm. they're all very uh, brown adjacent, yeah. if you will. We got a lot of shades of brown. A lot of shit. 50 just shades of brown. Yeah. Is that where we're going to rename the pod to? 50 yeah. shades of brown? It's just... If we have Melissa back, that's what we it's, couldn't rename it to. Yeah, 50 yeah. shades of brown. Just it's, uh, you know, after the 200th episode, I feel like I'll go through phases every 50 or so, right? You know, we got to see the, pro the growth and the progression, so... I, I'm feeling pants for like the next 50 episodes at least. Thank God, Let's man. Go. I'm feeling pants for a little bit. Mm -hmm. We'll see how I feel about the pants. The audience there. thanks you. But do they? Because yeah. like mm -hmm. I, I might then switch back to the five inch inseam shorts when I have bigger quads, you know? I don't know if you have the body type for big quads. Well, we'll find out now, won't we? I guess so. Yeah. I guess so. All right. You'd have to be like a massive human being to have big quads. Listen, like I got six, big five. dreams. Like if you have big yeah. quads and you're 6'5", then you're just... You're, an, you're, you're a lineman. Just, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, sir, are not a lineman. It's crazy. Not yet. Huh? No, yeah. I'm not, not going to be a lineman. Lineman in training. No, I will not be lineman adjacent. Honestly, with your metabolism, I don't even know that you could be. Like, I don't think you could consume enough food. To actually become 300 pounds. I'd, oh. I'd have to stop exercising because I it's love... It's remarkable you got fat. Like, how sedentary were you? When I say I didn't leave my house, I mean it. <laughs> I say that when I says something because I means it. I, People call me a lot of things, but they ain't going to call me a liar. <laughs> I really think that uh, you are a testament to why the quality of calorie that you consume matters. Go on. 
well, I imagine that I'm sure you were overeating whenever you were super sedentary, um, but it was mostly garbage food. Mm -hmm. I ate so much trash, man. Holy shit. Yeah. So it's like, it, it's, it's a clear indicator that swapping out sugar for protein suddenly allows you to just like maintain a normal weight. Like who would have thought? Yeah. I don't know. But what I do know is I absolutely love eating. Mm. Like in getting enough calories is never the issue, right? It's just a matter of doing it the right way, right. so to speak. Yeah. But yeah, you know. This is all upon embarking on the journey of having thick quads so I can bring back the inseam, you know? Just, you know what? Not even for me anymore. Just to prove you wrong. Right. Says, I don't think you're a big quad guy. All right. Mm. I remember I was talking when we watched uh, the Usman fight. Uh, and we were just sitting there as me, you, Henry, Espen, uh, Melissa. And I go, I don't really know how big these guys' quads are. And then Melissa looks at me like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> these guys are UFC fight. I was like... They're they're light. I'm pretty sure they they fight in uh like they're like 180 pounds or so. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, they're six like six one five ten. Why should they have thick quads? And she's like, they're UFC fighters. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, I get it. But comparatively speaking, comparatively speaking, right? I think I think the guys with the thickest quads in UFC, and I'm no expert by any stretch, but I think it's the guys with the wrestling background for the most part. Yeah. Uh, and the, the people who are like very skilled at jujitsu and that's their like number one, they're, they're going to be a lot longer, leaner, lankier, kind of like yourself. Yeah. Well, tortoises. Struggling. <laughs> it's coming out of his shell. I got, a, I got a new cord here. I, we're switching things up for the. The tortoise does not like I change. I no, to, not at all. I don't to adjust to it. <laughs> not at there all. Before I, the podcast be started. It has to be in the front. If it's in the back, then it's just pulling. Bro, it, it blends right That's in. You're wearing said. black on black. That's what I'm saying. Nobody can tell. Yeah, when, before the podcast started, uh, the headphones were switched, and I had uh, his silver ones, and he had my white ones. Mm -hmm. And he goes, I can't do this. No. Yeah, I, I don't blame him. Yeah. I don't blame him. Tortoises are creatures of habit. You don't live to 167 by switching it up all the time. And you definitely don't do it by for a tortoise is dying young. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Some bitches live to 200. It's truly remarkable how many tortoise memes go through the group chat. <laughs> just every time we see anything regarding a, a turtle or tortoise, Brian gets insta-tagged. Yeah. Well, every time. I, I love sure. these bits. I know. I know. It's, I really do love these bits. Uh, very good recurring theme. Yeah. <laughs> so... I don't. I don't. I don't want to. Uh, you know what? Let's fucking do it. Speaking of tortoises, <laughs> winning tournaments. Uh, uh, my man Ed Sebasta ships the 10k poker go. I think it was event number three. Yup. Beat our man Nick Shulman heads up. By the way, uh, him. <laughs> I can see the pain all over Nick's face mm -hmm. when when he lost heads up. Like. You just can't believe it because, you know, you're in a spot, you're in a six-figure spot playing a recreational who obviously doesn't put in the same amount of work as Nick and isn't quite as studied and everything else. But hey, it's MTT poker, man. The variance is incredibly high. And I could just see like the color kind of draining from his face where he's just like, okay, this is it. This is how this is going to fucking happen. Okay. And then he loses, he loses like a fake flip. I think it was like King nine versus ace high or something. Uh, like that. It was King high versus ace high where Nick's a 60-40. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like fake-ish flip. Yeah. Like, 10% edge will take it. Yeah, yeah, of course. And uh, afterwards, he's just like, okay, nice job. Feels good, doesn't it? Feels really fucking good, doesn't it? <laughs> and I know he meant it, but also, like, I, I know the competitive juices are flowing at that point where it's just like, God damn it. Right. You just really want it to come home, you know? And especially when, like, I know how much Nick studies and puts effort into not only heads up, but sure. other parts of just tournament poker in general. It's... 
kind of a sad feeling when when it's for all of it it's not out of your control but variance just plays such a bigger part right mm -hmm. where he knows a seven theory like theory snap mm -hmm. right now you just have to be like okay i hope i win the all in this time right yeah. because i can't do anything post yeah, it's yeah. Kind of the higher yeah you made all your decisions variant. now it's it's left up right to you made all of your one like, decision which was yeah. like very correctly right. correct right and when, now you have to deal yeah. with that i think mm -hmm. i think for the rest of the poker world uh he was kind of the sacrificial lamb at the altar, so to speak. Uh, I think it's an amazing story for a guy like Ed to win. Uh, you know, not only is this his hobby post-retirement, but he's utilizing all of the funds to donate to Holy Cross yeah. uh, on behalf of his son, who was a priest and died, I believe it was a brain cancer. Yeah, he had a brain tumor, sorry, in 2012. Um, so it's like, it's nice to find these feel-good stories that mm -hmm. may not quite get the same attention, uh, should he finish third or fifth or something along those lines? Right. right. Sometimes there's more of a storyline because when they have to write up the article about the winner, they find out more things. Where I would, I, I didn't know that prior. Right. I knew that he just like retired and plays for fun and travels when he wants to play. But knowing that, it's like, oh, that's a cool fact and something that is uh, admirable. Yeah, it's yeah. worth highlighting. And uh, John Smith is another great example that comes to mind where it's like, if he doesn't just go in there and boss the heads up tournament a few times in a row. It's a John Smith invitation. Right. Like we wouldn't find out what a, what a uniquely amazing individual he is. Like he's a decorated uh, veteran and, you know, he has all these other things in, uh, in his scope that... Uh, I think that it's it's the character development that we drastically lack in poker in the sense of it's very hard to be a recreational or weekend warrior and find these level of accolades, right? Mm -hmm. So without those accolades uh, kind of bolstering the stories, it never really gets out and we never really grow outside of our four walls. I think like looking back through the past history of just the development of our industry, this is what this is what elevated the boom and what the WSOP did such an amazing job of from 2003 uh, until like, call it like post Black Friday, maybe 2011, 2012. I don't know when the coverage like started to shift away from, uh, you know, covering all the events and, and things like that. But when they were covering all the events, there were so many human interest stories because technically nobody was really a pro during that time. And everybody was just a, a, a kind of a, a vying amateur who was taking their shot at turning into a pro and so much developed out of it. Like we saw, uh, you know, the, the Dutch Boyd and Scott Fishman crew kind of evolve. Dankness was a part of it. Like they, these guys ended up being established pros down the line, but it all started at the WSOP where they just came in as a group of friends who had just like, like the rest of us started firing no limit hold'em. And everybody wanted to be, they wanted their crew. Like, oh, that look at that crew. That's so cool. We yeah. want that. So yeah, yeah. Just, you know, you get a group of friends together and like, now we have a Yeah, crew. like clicks were formed. Johnny Bax came out of that too. He wins a stud bracelet having never played the game before. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, he suddenly is like one of the bigger backers in the industry. There, there were just like so many storylines that now we look back and a lot of these guys ended up having staying power. But in, in the moment... They weren't the Jeffrey Rosandros who were winning three bracelets. They weren't the Helmuths and the Negranus and the, the household names. You know, it was a lot of nobodies that were getting massively amplified. We were talking about this earlier this morning where maybe a good segment for the pod. 
maybe it's not even like once a week, but like once a month or something. We have a history day. Yeah, I, I, I don't know any of these stories, right? Like, I don't <laughs> no, know who Jeff Lasandro is. I didn't even know that Dankness was like something before poker kind of thing. Oh, it's not Will Jaffe. Will Jaffe Dankness. Wow. There's a different Dankness? It's uh, Brett Young, Youngblood. Youngblood, I think. The only Dankness I know is Potato Pancakes Will Jaffe. <laughs> That's the only Dankness I know. Yeah, I didn't even realize that it didn't even uh, cross my mind. I'm pretty, I'm pretty positive. I, I guess I, there's a chance that I'm wrong, but I'm pretty positive. Yeah, I, I have no idea. Like, I wouldn't be able to correct you because I don't know shit about fuck. Sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is this is what I wanted to do. I actually do have a Throwback Thursday planned this week. Um, it, it's going to be relevant to some of the news that's been out. So we're gonna we're gonna do our first Throwback Thursday this week. It's not going to be too far of a throwback. We're going to throw it back to like 2019, uh, but we're going to revisit. A few stories from that time frame it is something that i want to do because getting to know you well and your passion for the game it's remarkable to me at how little you understand about the history i know nothing because all i care about now is like to keep moving forward solve approach where it's like what is this history how does this history benefit me from a practical standpoint yeah so that's my question I, I get it you. well i get it I mean, it may, it may not. It, right. It's it's just uh, about developing outside of it's the culture. The well, yeah, I mean, you know, when I grew up an athlete, specifically baseball, I engulfed myself in it. Right? It's like I wanted to watch all of, like, I wanted to know everything about the '70s and that era and the the Weir Family Pirates, and I wanted to know everything about the '60s and uh, Henry Aaron breaking the record and um, Joe, no, not Joe DiMaggio. Uh, Maris, Roger Maris, like all of that stuff that was going on. I read a book on Joe DiMaggio. Like I cared about all that stuff because they were the fabric of modern game. I have a theory that I just realized now. You tell me, you can confirm or deny. When it comes to the history and things like that, when it comes to athletes, mm -hmm. they are your idols. You look up to these people. As they a kid. are the, as a kid, they're yeah. part of your mm -hmm your past and you would like to be the future of what they were. Yeah. Right? It's like, these are the people I really like. I want to be like them. Mm -hmm. I don't have that feeling for the people before me. Yeah. I, I don't have that feeling of, I don't, I want to be like, like a Doyle. I want to be like right, right. Jeff Lissandro. It's like, I don't care. I'm in this for me. I'm in this to do this it with is, me and it the is homies. It's kind of different. Like where, like your perspective on that. Cause like when we were growing up, when we were in high school and playing in your grandma's uh, attic, like we, we did want to be those guys. Sure. We wanted to be the Doyles. We wanted to be those, those professional poker players because that's all we knew, right? right. Yeah. So it, I, think, I think the evolution of poker is a little bit different, right? right. Like, it's, uh, it's not as slow as, as athletics. Mm -hmm. So, like, the progression from, like, Babe Ruth to Hank Aaron wasn't that sharp. And then from Hank Aaron to Barry Bonds, and now Barry Bonds to, you know, call it Bryce Harper or something along those lines. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's relatively linear and level. So it takes like a Bryce Harper to look back on a Babe Ruth and say like, he wasn't that good, man, you know? And that's like a hundred plus years. Right. But the evolution of poker was so rapid. So fast. That it's like 10 years later, you mm -hmm. can look back and say like, these guys all fucking stink. <laughs> and they're still playing with you. Right. They're still, they're right, still right. in they're the not arena. Even, they're not even technically retired right. yet. Right. Right. Well, there's a different journey and call it character arc for people that make it in the poker scene where staying power is sort of harder to come across, right? Because someone that's been in the industry for 10 plus years is kind of hard to find at this point. Where in baseball and stuff, people 
have their full-time careers, like very long-standing careers, become an all-star probably two to three years in, right? But then they stick around and they stay. A lot of people that get really good in poker now exit and find something else to do. Yeah, I think it's more of a... I think it comes down more so to... I don't know if it's necessarily a media problem or just like a, a marketing problem as a whole for the industry. But like we... You know, to be quite honest, this is this is a clear area where like somebody like Poker, poker Go drops the ball because they... They have all those licenses for all of this past footage. They have the capacity to do what they will with the history of the game because they have all of it digitized, right? And they, they have basically scrubbed the internet of this history of the game. If I go look for WSOP uh, clips, I'm not going to find shit. It's paywalled. Right, it's all <clears throat> paywalled, right? So, you know, growing up as a kid, it's like I learned everything through NFL films, through This Week in Baseball, through uh, ESPN, through the magazine, Sports Illustrated, all of these publications, it was their duty to not just report on what's happening now, but to report on what's happening now within the framework of what's happened in the past. We don't see that in poker at all. Okay, I have a second theory. You can tell me, confirm or deny. With the new era of poker, right? call it the solver era, and the people becoming wizards and machines so to speak like my idols in poker right the machine learners and studiers right like chewy long-standing machine guy chidwick long-standing like machine guy when it came out coon right these people are still around and exist and these are the people that i look up to that i care about more so than the past yeah, it makes like, sense. i'm trying to aspire to be like them I don't really care for the stuff before. Well, that's because the stuff before is two generations. Right. Right. And that, that makes that makes reasonable sense. What's one generation? Like Kuhn and being like very new. Generations solver, are usually like, like fifteen years. Okay. So like the blend between live to artificial uh intelligence thinking and now it's like artificial intelligence thinking to even greater artificial intelligence thinking. Cause I call it the ICM Sims, ICM. Well, you'll just see post. more of a, you'll just see a, a greater divide, I think, uh, before there's a, a confluence between online and live. So the separation now, uh, basically, as as technology hits all realms, like almost all winners in live are also doing some level of study. Mm -hmm. As that technology spawns out and hits everybody, now what people will recognize is that one environment is very kind and that's live it's super or, or sorry that's online it's like very cooperative to the artificial thinking so in the in the sense of kind versus wicked uh the notion is cooperation versus um chaos okay right? so more people play online which makes it kinder. no no well yes that's true but more people just play the exact same strategy online not the exact same but they play within the framework of the same strategy right they play strategic adjacent <laughs> well they all play some derivative of what we believe to be gto right right uh, uh, less the whales uh so sands the whales and the whales are obviously where all the win rate comes from mm -hmm. so uh you know the vast majority of that environment requires that you kind of conform and the outliers will be those who find uh the deviations within the the, the conforming right so basically you get to utilize a template where you understand that the environment plays a certain way and i think like detox data has shown a lot of this right uh so there's just like sort of a uniform approach to the environment and putting in volume and then of that you'll have some outliers who find holes in that approach and are exploiting 
uh, correctly. Live is the opposite. It's very chaotic. So it's a wicked environment. No one really cooperates in any capacity when it comes to the strategy that's being employed. Right. So you'll see all the rules getting broken. You'll see instead of raise first in, limp first in. You'll see limp five X's, right. cold calls versus three bets. Yeah, you'll see RFIs that are in the 10% range from most positions or on average to RFIs that are in like the 30% range on average. You'll see a lot of calling, a lot of cold calling, not enough three betting, uh, all, all of these things that take place, which will carry us into our strategy conversation in a little bit about bluffing and why it's, it's such a challenge. Um, but because you have this great divide between a kind environment and a wicked environment, uh, your, your personality type or your comprehension or your exposure is going to shift you hard one way or the other. And we'll see this divide take place uh, more and more and more until there's some sort of confluence. And I think what will we'll create some level of confluence is either a technical assistance to live that now forces um, a more kind environment, i.e. like call it Google Glasses, where everybody just has uh, the availability to uh, HUD everyone that they're playing against or gather data in some capacity. Like if they're ever able to gather data live, uh, it's going to alter the strategies tremendously or uh, something to curb the technology online, right? Some security measure that comes into place where, you know, uh, all of this data is being stripped away from the player pool. And that's highly unlikely, right? Hmm, the way, the way like it kind of sounds and what makes sense to me seems like there's like the median there's always like outliers and then the median right so when it comes to the outliers in the online and live environment there's clearly some things that are going on strategically that are different that are going to cause that to be the case i think both of them are doing something very similar both of them are comprehending the average strategy employed in their environment and they're deviating heavily Right, and those deviations look different. Well, they look very different because the strategies that they're comprehending are very different. Right. Right? Like when we talk about, uh, you know, when I talk about like what I observe around me and I'm playing in a game where it's literally like uh, open, we're playing seven-handed. This happened to me the other day. We're playing seven-handed. It goes open under the gun, 3X. Under the gun, one, uh, 3X, three bets. I, two and a half X, four bet from the hijack with aces. And the cutoff calls, the button calls, the small blind calls, the big blind calls, the <laughs> under the gun opener calls, and the under the gun one razor calls. We go seven ways to the flop. <laughs> right. And this is this is playing like twenty five fifty. So it's like everybody's just in there for like a thousand pre, and we're all like five hundred blinds effective. And you did that, not win. I did not win. I, <laughs> I could, could not. How win. could you? I could not win. It's it's just not. Honestly, I I, I thought back to that to that hand. Lane and I were talking about this, uh, so many tangents. Uh, <laughs> we were talking about this and I was like, yeah, like it's funny because you're, you're the biggest favorite going to the flop, but being a favorite means you're gonna win the pot like one in five times right. if it checks down, right? So like the fair equity realization here is like 20%. Um, but because you have aces, you just naturally over-realize because it's not a hand that you are accustomed to folding, right? So that means that uh, you're going to over-realize that 20% equity, but what comes off of the over-realization is a loss. Yeah. Right? Because you have to invest a bunch of money to over-realize mm -hmm. with what feels to be a very good hand. And the problem is, is that barring you improve to a set, you can't really make a lot of money because you're never comfortable value betting one pair uh, seven ways. 
And the the converse to this is that you lose a pile of money whenever you get turned or rivered. Yeah, you get implied on, so to speak. What yeah. I realized, what I realized uh, needs to happen in those situations that I too often forget because it's, I'm so far removed from the 2013 version of my head, and we've gotten to more. If you're out of position, uh, play passively post flop. You have to bet the flop unless it's a flop you plan on just giving up on. And the reason for this is that when you choose to check, everybody else now begins to overrealize. You're the hand. You have the hand that naturally overrealizes on its own. And you don't really want to... It doesn't improve well. It's not like flopping top pair with king queen on a queen XX, right? Like that hand will also overrealize, but it also improves and probably wins the pot more frequently than aces uh, when push comes to shove, right? With aces, though, you have to clean up as much equity as possible. Right. So, like, literally just investing half pot on the flop will give you so much more clarity in your strategy moving forward that ultimately you may be able to find some uh, pretty exploitative folds that save you a pile of money. And more importantly, the times that you do have the best of it, you're now playing a reduced field size for a larger pot. So a lot of the equity when people fold is actually getting thrust back to you. Back yeah, to you. for sure. And what ended up happening is I checked, it ended up like checking around and uh, a guy who had like bottom pair turns two pair with nine, seven off. And it's probably a hand that would have just folded the flop based off of his positioning, but maybe not, you know, we did go seven ways and he had nine, mm -hmm. seven off. So it's like, yeah, maybe he doesn't give up on the seven ball. You don't ball. flop pairs to fold. You know, well, seven ways you kind of, you kind of do. You can make two pair. It's not always a clean two pair, you know? They got me. They got me. They got me. You I mean, me. it sounds like a very good game. It was a very good game. Yeah. I played it for 30. Well, we'll, we'll get to that, actually. Yeah, you're wired. No, you know what? Let's, let's just talk about it now. Fuck it, uh, we, we ball. Fuck it, we ball. Uh, I was going to talk about it in the, in the top of the hour anyway. So I started playing this game at 4 p.m. on Saturday. And I had woken up for the gym Saturday morning. So I'd been up since 7 a.m. So my day went as follows. Wake up at seven, gym, sauna, whatever, all this stuff. Grab lunch, turn on the playoff game, like 1 p.m. now. Uh, get a text, game running, start playing at 4 p.m. Started at 4 p.m., was uh, grinding. Game only got better with every hour that passed. <laughs> I'm, I'm fucking buried. By buried, I think I was down like 10K. But the game's like clearly getting a lot bigger. And it's a 200 big blind cap game. So I can't sit any deeper as all the stacks around me become like six and 700 big blinds. Uh, so I keep like just finding myself in, I have to kind of like play tight and almost like play a shot taking type strategy just because of how wild the action is around me. Otherwise, like you're just rocketing off 10K over and over and over again, just trying to push, you know, 2% equity edges and hope that fucking variance falls in your favor at some point. Uh, so I kind of like found myself playing a little bit tight and the game just kept getting better and better and better. And I'm like fluctuating to like, you know, down 5k, even down 10k, even down 12k, even like just going back and forth. Then finally at like, it must've been eight o'clock in the morning at this point. So we'd been playing for like 14 hours. I went a thousand big blind pot and it's like, okay. Let's fucking go, baby. Now, all of a sudden, I'm like plus 16,000. And I'm looking. It's like there's still five fish sitting. 
in a seven-handed game. And I feel good. I feel great. I'm like, we ball. Let's ride. The game ends up breaking at, I don't know, noon the next day. So we played for like, or maybe, yeah, like noonish. We played for 20 hours, give or take. It might have been, actually, it might have been closer to one because I remember I, I ate lunch and then played the circuit event right after. Uh, so probably closer to one. We played for like 21 hours. I ended up losing all of it back. Uh, I, I lost like, I think I lost like 10K on the day, uh, but felt fucking fantastic. Both mentally, I felt like locked in. I just, you know, kind of ran a little bit bad. There was a spot where I opened 10 native diamonds, went three ways. It came uh, jack eight, six, two clubs. Uh, we both checked to the button who pots. Uh, big blind folds, I call. Turn, he, he only uses pot, by the way. This is only bet sizing. The pots, I call. Turn is an offsuit eight. I check, he pots. Ooh. He pots, and I jam for like roughly pot. And he just has four deuce of clubs and snaps it off for like 10K. Mm. So it ends up being like a 30K pot where he's literally just, you know, dead to six outs, smashes the nine of clubs on the river, we out. Uh, but anyway, it was, a, it was a great game. And after being awake for, you know, now 30 hours or so, I'm just like fucking zoned in. I'm like, I can't believe this. Like, I have no desire to go to bed. I feel like I just played great. Uh, I'm just going to sauna and lift again. So I just go about my day. Now all of a sudden it's like 3 p.m. And the circuit's starting on WSOP. And I was like, well, there's really no reason for me to go to bed now. Because like, what am I going to do? Sleep for an hour and then try to get back on a normal. I was like, I might as well just stay up and play this circuit. If I do well, great. If not, then I'll be in bed by nine. You know, no big deal. We'll, we'll just reset. So I hop in the circuit and just fucking mash it. Landon and I are like swapping back and forth chip lead the whole way through. Uh, he has an unfortunate series of events happen with like two tables left. What'd you end up getting? Like 16th? Um, don't worry about it. Something down bad. <laughs> uh, Irrelevant. I, got, I got scammed a few times along the way, but you know, luckily I, I also held in some flips and end up coming into the final table. I think I was four of eight. Mm -hmm. uh, coming to the final table, like four of eight, four bust of the first guy. Uh, what was the hit event? Uh, bust yeah. the first guy to, to oh, prop right. myself up. Um, lose I think I might have lost like a small win anyway we get down to six handed and I'm like four of six but we're all really close we all have like 35 blinds chip leader yeah. has like 60 or 70 yeah like two mil yeah and everyone else had like a mil yeah oh, yeah you were sweating it I was watching uh, was yeah, there? she ended up winning it shout out to Pollux uh, for what it's worth too I've played with Pollux a lot and Nobody has gotten it in as a four to one dog against me more often than Pollux. Like, yeah, that's she's, she's like, got that dog in her. She just, she just <laughs> manages, uh, and you know, a lot of it is just like whatever. Like, she has a pair. We're just supposed to play all in pots, but it's like I somehow have aces all the fucking time, and she has a hand like sixes or sevens, and I never win it. Never, <laughs> fucking never. Just absolutely never. She, she's the equivalent of Kerstetter, where it's like I'm always drawing dead. <laughs> Uh, so finally, I think I get my revenge. There's six left. We're all very close in chips. I open jacks from the cutoff, button flats. And I'm like, oh, she's about to get spicy here. She's in the small blind with the chip lead. And it has like a two to one chip lead over the field. I was like, this is, this this is, is the it, spot. Chief. This, this is the perfect spot. spot. You, yeah. you talked to Chief. Chief said this is it. Uh, she makes it 11 blinds. And I'm like, fuck. Like, I was fully expecting a jam here. Mm -hmm. Because the big blind only had 20 bigs. The flat caller had 30. I had 35. It's like, there isn't really going to be a lot of three-bet folding taking place here. 
not squeeze wise anyway. Like, you know, theoretically, sure. Practically, I don't know that we're really going to see it that much. So like hands that may want to three bet fold like ace 10 might just like yellow it in and put me in a fucking trashy ICM spot, you know? So I'm a little bit like, fuck, here we go. Hope it's ace king. Rip it. She tanks. I'm like, okay, okay. And then calls queens. Yeah. Send me home. Mm. Yeah. The, but I got even. You, you got you even. Got even I yeah. got sixth place for 10K. Got that 10K back. Went to bed at 9 p.m. Woke up the next day at 7, ready to fucking conquer the world. Good day, man. Yeah, it well, was a great day. I would have liked you to get at least fourth. Yeah, mm. because we had a swap on anything over 20K. And yeah, yeah. fourth or better. Mm -hmm. So you, you scammed me. You scammed me. It's, it's crazy because, like, there's always a certain amount of time that somebody tanks before you feel like your hand is just like nuts mm -hmm. in the sense of when someone tanks in that spot it's not like they're really tanking with top of range so you're flipping versus like ace queen suited <clears throat> maybe yeah. if you're not sure like quote unquote what to do or whatever and then like you're praying for tens yeah yeah, yeah. like just so, somehow like a, a not confident pair right that probably should have just jammed but like now is in a weird spot We're in a, yeah exactly so it's like uh okay or they just like have jacks also because it's like i don't right. know what to do it's either like that split second you get that hope you know and yeah you got hope like, okay and yeah then, what was probably happening was like she was just she like not that long long enough that i didn't was, think it was that's queens. What I'm long, right long enough you didn't think it was queens but not so long that she had like there's the window of it was a hope. small it was a small knit roll not a big one yeah uh and it was probably just like uh there was there was a hand earlier where i busted a shorty where it folded blind versus blind he jammed for like nine and i was looking up players on the table so i wasn't on screen and i come back i'm like oh shit and i call and landon after the hand messages me he goes that's a snap he goes, you know that's a snap right and i'm like yeah man i was like looking up this dude to my left i think he's a whale but i'm not sure yeah i was just seeing this like 10 big blind jam from small and i'm like oh he's tanking okay like maybe he has a decision and i see ace eight off and i'm like what no it's ace three off ace, but either yeah. way it either way, I was like, what, yeah. the, what, what are we doing here and yeah then, uh, I, honestly, it's funny because like so much of online, especially WSOP where you can't download hands or anything, it's all observational. Yeah, mm -hmm. So it's like somebody who's good at poker at some point in time will see a decision like that made by me and they're instantly going to whale tag me and I'm going to make so much extra money off that because I was just busy off on a you browser think that somewhere. they didn't already whale tag you? Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. That <laughs> this wasn't true. the straw that broke the camel's back, no, that, man. That is true. That is true. Oh man, he's such a whale. He didn't call his three off when he's out here <laughs> tripling off some hand that doesn't even exist. No, it's not. It's not that. It's uh, it's it's the hesitancy or what appears to be hesitancy. Right. It makes it look yeah. like nervous. We'll fold in ICM spots or just like unknowledgeable, right? Like whenever you have a, a a pure call and there's some time delayed, it just comes off as like lacking knowledge. Yeah, yeah. Where it's like, oh, this is a very clear snap, and then you don't. So yeah. I guess he's just not as studied as I thought. Yeah, exactly. Kind of thing. Um, they don't whale tag you. They bad rag tag you. That's that's fair. I've I've notoriously been tagged bad rag. And I'm Can here. we get back to the bad rag Berkey strats, please? Would I want love you to, back. Man. In I would love to get rich again in 2023. All of you guys running stream games that want a nice bad rag in your game, I'm I'm here for you. You're man. the BRB. I'm, I'm BRB. <laughs> He'll B be right back. I'm BB bad rag Berkey. <laughs> <laughs> Big bad Berkey, bad red Berkey. Big bad, the triple B, BRB. Berkey. One more, one more. I'll cross the Red Sea to play the stream game right now. What more can you ask for than a bad reg who bets big? You know, that's like fucking dream. Yeah. I'm your You're the big bad reg Berkey. Yeah. I'm your white well, baby. The BBRB. The double BRB. What's, uh, 
what's what's the guy from Moby Dick? Ahab, Captain Ahab. Yeah, yeah. Be my captain. There's A H A B, and then there's B B R B. You know, you know how that ended, right? You know how Moby Dick ended. Uh, he dies, right? Yeah. 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 The white whale gets them all in the end. Yeah, it's something about like the white whale being the bad reg. Yeah. Yeah, that's me. Is that so? You're in your you're in whale. your comeback era. I'm I, bro. I never left. You've always been in the comeback the fuck era. Are you kidding? Well, you were you were rich at one point. I I'm still rich on paper. You're paper rich. <laughs> I've been paper rich paper for a long champion. time. Yeah. Being paper rich is not the same as being rich. It's not, but it's it's you know what it is. It's it's more comforting than uh, actually being not rich. Right, like it's the intermediary between uh, it's purgatory. It's perfect because it gives you a little bit of anxiety and makes you work really hard to get. Like it puts you back into. Uh, uh, kind of a survivalist mindset. Right. Um, but the fact of the matter is you're very protected. And it's nice. It's like having a 401k without actually having one. It's like, <laughs> well, it's not even like survivalist in the sense of needing to sustain, but more so, oh, okay, I'm very goal-oriented, career-focused again. Yeah. Where when you're super, when you're rich. Focused, and, if you will. Yeah, you're just yeah. like, you're in that, you're in your focus era. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm in the... I'm in the uh, Fedor coming out of retirement era. We we love that for you. I mean, I love poker, man. I really <laughs> do. We love poker. that for him, Brian. We do. We love, we love that. that for you. Yes. Okay, we just make, I just had to consult with the tortoise. Well, we love oh, that for you. Welcome back, Mac. Welcome back, Matt. We'll see whenever you guys have more work to do for the podcast because yep. I'm I'm busy off gallivanting. Damn it. Where are you gallivanting to? Who knows, man? There's games everywhere. I got invited to a game in Maryland that's supposed to be like 200, 400. Let's fucking go, dude. Wow. Let's fucking go. I, every so I love Terps. Let's go. Should we, this, uh, should we bring the podcast to Maryland? I mean, I might just have to dip out of Florida for a couple of days. <laughs> I don't want to go to Maryland. See, Shoot up the coast. The iterations of this podcast are really going to change in the coming days. Yeah. Uh, coming months, it's I gonna, guess. It's going to be a fun experiment. It's definitely an experiment. It's just a matter of where the workload goes. That's true. That's true. I I'm all, understand, though, I'm always very mindful of the fact that I have the most skin in the game. Therefore, I will always have the lion's share. Like I've never once, and you know, if anybody disagrees within the the company, they're welcome to speak out. But I've never once <laughs> loaded somebody's plate to any degree of uh, even like twenty percent of like what I'm taking. It's not close. Yeah, it's not even close. I, I'm happy to shoulder the load. It's, this as, is my as, one of, as a baby lion. <laughs> as a baby. <laughs> this is my creative disaster. Uh, a couple other feel good stories I want to get out of the way before we we discuss bluffing. Man, I I really wanted to get into the bluffing fast, but I, I I'm just here for the feel good stories. Good, another tortoise, if you will. <laughs> uh, huge shout out to friend of the show and one of the best to ever do it, uh, Law McCarran ships the senior event at uh, his homeroom. Let's go, Lawn Thunder Valley. Getting some hardware. Getting a little hardware. Looking Love good it. in that winner's yeah. photo, man. Absolutely. Looking really sharp he up should. there. He's happy as a clam. Yeah. You'll love to see it. Uh, one, of, one, of, one of the best ever to do it in the booth. I, I enjoy Lon and Norm probably more than most. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it is because of like where I fall in that age demographic. It's like right there with you, these brother. are the guys that I grew up on. Yes. And I don't care if the game evolves past what their skill set was at one point. It should always be something that uh, both we, we kind of hang on to from the past, but also highlight moving forward. Like looking back on Lon and uh, Norman's contributions to the WSOP back when it was just a half hour produced show on ESPN. And, uh, you know, even looking at like Gabe um, Kaplan for high stakes poker. It's such a different type of commentary. And it's one that we overlook so much like 
of course we need Ali Najad and Shulman mm -hmm. and Henry Kill the Game Bane out in these streets for 12 hour long streams, you know, filling the void yeah. and uh, adding in knowledge and colorful stories and everything that will keep the viewer yeah, they, engaged. They were like the first ones to make a not so exciting game very exciting. Right. They, to me, are the dart announcers mm -hmm. that we watched the other right. day. Yeah, yeah. Like, they just don't have to do too much. And honestly, like, I, I am a little bit, uh, it, it is a little bit tough to see them thrust into roles that, uh, not, not that they can't do well in, but they're just not best suited for, right? right? Like, Lon and, and Norm are just best being quippy and, uh, you know, getting to the every man's view of this game and and keep it like those packages that we used to watch were so fucking good and they made them good yeah and you know what the thing about it is like where i'm thinking of it through the commentary lens like they were the first era of call it poker commentary is it did not seem as if there was really an analyst in that regard but more just two or like for Gabe, like one one color commentator, where there was mm -hmm. no strategical aspect of it, of like looking at the game at a, like a nuanced level, but it was, oh, he's targeting exactly what he has here. Yeah. You know what I mean? But and that's okay. Like it's I not think, a bad thing. I think that cursory view is something that we need to lean more into rather than push back against. Right. Of course, the hardcores aren't, it, it's not going to be their cup of tea, but it's not for you. Right, you know, it's like these broadcasts that actually make it to TV, uh, the shortened versions. <laughs> for of, the everyday man, the person who plays in a home game once a week, right? And that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's, it's like an introduction, right? There's the the broader poker community doesn't or aren't looking at solves and, and 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 looking at this in a very analytical way. They just want to watch and be entertained. I'm. I should ask Nick about this actually, but I wonder when it comes to commentary as a whole when you love the strategic aspects so much, but you also know that, like, call it displaying, like, the Lord's work in that way mm -hmm. of, like, the strategical aspects of some ICM spots or some post-flop ideas, where it's not necessarily the viewer's want in that situation, but you just have a desire to still sort of share some things. Yeah, it's, it's, it's almost like selfish to like flex that way. Right? right. Because it's more for you than for them. Right. If you're thinking of it from the framework of like, this is only going to land with the hardcores. What if the viewers see you as the analyst? Where uh, I think, I, well, you know, and I think Nick does a fantastic job of this. Yeah. Uh, and Brent as well. Uh, you just have to know your audience and scale back to what it is that's going to land with them, right? Mm -hmm. The term that is so popular that I hear thrown around a lot, Ali uses it a ton, is that's too inside baseball, right? And for those who are young like yourself, Inside Baseball was a weekly show in the 90s that would like really go hardcore into the behind the scenes. It's like a sports science type. Yeah, it's it's comparable to that, except like sports science leans into the actual right science. Uh, kinesthetic science that's yeah, taking place. Yeah, of course. Place. I just meant like knowledge wise. Yeah, it, it would lean very heavy into like these are the statistics. Uh, this is what Bonds has done over the last month. And uh, don't get me wrong, it was still very cursory. It was curated for the person that wanted to know. It was more. definitely for the hardcores. Yeah, right. It was for the hardcores for sure. 
And I love that that became like a pop culture reference, uh, like to mean something, you know, yeah. uh, it has this like underlying meaning of like, you're, you're being too uh, technical right now. Um, and I think that, I think it's important for us to have people who are able to speak to that level and do so very well and eloquently in a commentary role. But again, I think that the vast majority of that is reserved for streams where you have more hardcores because it's 12 hours long and you can kind of interweave a lot of deeper strategy discussion with like, you know, some light humor and uh, whatever else you, you want to do. Generally speaking, like I think we get the streaming aspects right. Um, I think that what we lack now is converting all of that stream footage into the shortened, uh, well-produced, Lon McCarran, Norman Chad type of uh, final product, right? Like imagine if Hustler had uh, a Sunday, a Saturday and Sunday show that was just a 30-minute highlight package of their Friday, of their Friday show and Max Payne Monday. And they do a breakdown on it? No. No, just, they, just no, they do wrong. like what WSOP used to do, okay. right? So you take this 12 hours of coverage and you pull out the, the most... Uh, the, the most interesting, hands. memorable hands, spots, whatever. And we already, we already see this happening on YouTube where it's like one hand specifically is clipped, but we haven't actually seen it produced into a show. Right. right? And like, that's what Lon and Norm were just fantastic at. I don't know if they wrote their own stuff or if, if they had a ghostwriter doing it. I, I tend to think that they wrote their own stuff based off of like, you know, Norman's uh, type of humor that would work its way right. in and, and Lon kind of setting it up and, you know, yeah. carrying the action. Through. And you think this is going to look slightly different than just cutting and merging the clips of the hands, but something a little bit more refined. Yeah. Because it, whenever you just watch clips, you're still just watching, uh, you're watching a glimpse of a bigger thing. Yeah. They were like, they would, they were clips, but they were cut and edited in a way to told a story. Correct. Right. So you, like, you would have to go yeah. back and watch like old WSOP coverage to really understand what we're saying. Right. But like you, you would watch these uh, every Tuesday, these final tables, and you would get the entire story of nine to nine to a winner told in 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. Really? Now, they, now, now yeah. these, these, these shows were, you know, produced like months later or you know yeah, a, yeah, a yeah. it wasn't like i'm asking know, for it, a lot when i say turn it around, turn around in, in six in days week, or whatever yeah yeah, yeah turn it around i mean that wouldn't be yeah. the right approach but like right. you understand what i'm saying if they had mm -hmm. a saturday and sunday show that was was showing maybe i don't know three months from the past like if yeah. you always have a three-month right. catalog whatever right. yeah um but yeah i, I think sense. it's cool it's it's right so i think that people would I, I don't think people recognize that uh that is still an evolution in spite of the fact that it's kind of re uh, rebranding or reproducing something that had already occurred in the past. Mm -hmm. It's an evolution for YouTube. YouTube doesn't have uh, most of YouTube content is actually still at that like bare bones minimum production level where it's just click record like we do yeah. and fire. I mean, we, we would stand to benefit from the same thing. The difference is this is a talk show, right? So like, you don't bring in a third party commentator who like speaks over it and, and things of that nature. Right. Makes sense. So Lon won a ring. Lon won a ring. Congratulations, Lon. I, I apparently have a tangent for every every one of these stories. <laughs> I did not. We're masters at making shows out of nothing. I didn't play any of that. We're conjurers. We are. The final feel-good story of the day. Uh, actually, not even close. We have many more to wrap the show with as well that you know really hit home with Lamanna and I. But uh, the final poker feel-good story of the day is Johnny Vibes. Uh, Amazing. All right. We, we have to get this story right. So... 
He tweets out, Tuesday I was eating ramen and the bartender watches my vlog, so we started chatting poker. He's a dad and now doesn't get to play anymore. He lives vicariously through vlogs, and I felt inspired to stake him in an $1,100 MSPT this weekend. I could tell it meant the world to him. So we did a 40% for me, 50% for him, 10% for the other bartender. Since he has no real poker tournament experience, I had no expectations of making money. Just wanted to do something nice for these guys. Well, he's crushing it. About 40 players left, 125k top, up top, using my one card for Corey Peoples. The update to this was he got fourth place for $41,500. Amazing. It's like such a... I, I mean, it's like such a serendipitous type of story where, you know, you just have... And this is something that uh, as, as influencers within the space, we navigate a lot, right? Uh, you're just going to naturally meet more people because mm -hmm. they watch you on the internet. And because of that, what ultimately will happen is you will find yourself in situations where you get to know people on a human level that you otherwise would never even say more than, you know, give, give a head nod to something yeah. to that effect. Right. This to me is like everything great about the industry that we're in, everything that is amazing about the content creation space and about guys like Johnny who really do deserve a lot of credit in this instance. Like this is just him, right? There's no, angle here right. there's like this is just the way his mind works where he just feels compelled and inspired by somebody to do something nice when that works out favorably for all parties involved it's so incredible yeah, I mean, and i'm so happy for johnny because right. like he he does this you know how they say no good deed goes unpunished well sometimes you do a good deed and then it comes back like when rampage right <laughs> rampage put the the uber driver in a one three game and the man just like hit the fucking road yeah, yeah <laughs> like right. that deed was right. a little bit more punishable but like even that's another good example like i love this idea of we are so divorced from the meaning of money and so hypersensitive to the mm -hmm. meaning of opportunity because somewhere along the line, all of us were flat on our face and somebody reached out a helping hand said, I believe in you, right? right, And gave us the opportunity to prove that we were worth something in the thing that we believed ourselves to be relatively decent at. And those of us who are still here likely survived the majority of those scenarios, right? So to find a scenario like this where it's like he's lighting 1100 on fire, it's not that Corey is terrible at poker. I don't know anything about him. But the likelihood that a bartender has a win rate in an open eleven hundred no, is he, probably pretty low. Yeah, I think he pretty. I think he said he's played lot fifteen live tournaments his entire life. Right, right, and it, the biggest buy-in was eighty dollars. Mm -hmm. So I mean, he's you know, he, very inexperienced player for sure. Right, but now he's twenty k richer. Yep, his his bartending partner is four k richer. Johnny is able to make like you know fifteen thousand off of this investment where he's probably losing a couple hundred bucks mm -hmm. in EV. In and he's theory. parlaying that into the, into the uh, PC8, the, uh, the 25K, the PSPC. Johnny, Johnny is? is. Oh, okay. Yeah, so he's, he said he's, uh, he, he's made money during, um, you know, take backing people, which I'm sure he meant the, uh, the situation. And now he's gonna go play the 25K for all of it. Great. So yeah, I hope he you makes should. a big run in that. Yeah, yeah of course he you should. probably would have never played it and then because of this, uh, you know, because of Corey making this deep run, could end up, you know, making life changing money. Yeah, uh, go, uh, ahead, go ahead, Yeah, it's just like in the act itself, like we've already had the conversation on the pod about the 
there's no such thing as like pure altruistic sure, motives, sure. but you just have to look at the actions in themselves. Mm -hmm. And it's obviously a really nice one, you know? And he didn't do it from a sense of like financial gain. It was just, hey, I think this would be fun, yeah. not just for you and for me. Right. And, you know, and if things go well, there's some asymmetric upside from like the content perspective. And that's okay because that's just part of like the unspoken fine print of things that happen. Right. It's not like the. It's not a bad thing at all, and it's not a slight. Just no, it, it's, it just kind of speaks to how dumb this whole industry is. And I don't mean dumb in the sense of like, like low IQ. I mean no. dumb in the sense of like what a silly game we play. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, kind of knowing that the odds are stacked in our favor, but we're willing to kind of gamble a little bit. Anyway, sometimes, you know, there's a benefit to, to not just yourself. It's not just a selfish benefit, right? Yeah. Like this is, this is kind of one of those times where it's not life-changing money, but it's short-term. Yeah. You know, it's going to have some impact on this guy. And that, For sure. all of that's just like, so I, I don't know, man. It, sometimes there, you just got to say, fuck it, we ball. Yeah, like, <laughs> I, don't, I, I like this. Like Victoria was talking about this yesterday too, of like how incentivized all these women are to be a part of their community and their league playing for 1k seats yeah like the ev of what they're playing for if you broke it down like if they if they were that studied and if knew, you crunch the numbers yeah, yeah and knew that they were playing for like a dollar 50 in ev per hour uh you know it might it might like reduce the excitement but they're not at that point they're still at that at that learning phase and honestly uh it doesn't even matter that it's only a dollar 50 an hour because they might be earning like 10x that in in experience be it life-wise exactly. or, or poker wise right, right. in that scenario so these opportunities that are afforded to those who otherwise couldn't take them i know that on the surface level it just looks like buying someone a lottery ticket and hoping for the best and, and you know in a very black and white world that that is i guess what it could be reduced down to but uh in a more human gradient type world where where we don't we don't solidify things as so always or never there's just a lot of a lot of a snowball effect that can take place here you know maybe he pays it forward to somebody else yeah. in some other manner it doesn't have to be within the poker space it doesn't have to be within gambling but maybe like that twenty thousand gets leveraged into doing some real good right yeah and who know like in the sense of like who knows who cares it doesn't matter because the action in, in itself is the important part right right you can't now track and say oh this guy did something good for you now you have to pay it forward it doesn't matter mm -hmm. right what matters is a situation happened everyone involved was happy with the way things ended out and fortunately it ended up well right because the story doesn't exist at least publicly as big of what we make it in our community if he just like plays a tournament and gets dusted yeah right yeah, just yeah. doesn't show up it's like does johnny still have his content yeah sure like hey i gave this guy a tournament like i gave him a guy a seat and you can get the hand history or whatever and that's still great right but at the same time it doesn't get leveraged and scaled enough and that's that, okay. that is that is like the other nice thing is that clearly we've gotten to the point now where we're our own media yeah we do we say whatever we want like this is front page news and it was literally all done through johnny's reporting Right, right, because no one is doing it themselves. Like, right, the Every, everybody agency. else is gonna is gonna run with it. Like, we're covering it. Poker News wrote an article about it. Like, it's all second handed to him actually telling his own story and creating his own narrative. And I, I think you know, by and large, that's kind of a good thing in the niche industry. I think so too. We get to con like we as individuals get to control how we uh, use and leverage and utilize the platform. Right, because if Johnny doesn't say anything and just does it anyways, that's still great. 
right? Yeah. He's still doing a thing. But also, it's now a story, and it's nice to have everyone reflect on it and be like, oh, sometimes like you do good deeds for other people, things end up working out that makes me feel good, and maybe it inspires you to create positive change. Right, yeah. And that's what it's all about, right? You have a platform, create positive change as much as you can, and enjoy it. That's right. fine. That's why I like coming on here every day. People that's say, right. like, oh, like, podcasts are boring. Not boring, but like, doesn't it get tiring doing this every day, Monday to Friday? It's like, no. I enjoy being here. Mm. I really like being here. Same. I, I think that it exercises a muscle that otherwise goes like untouched, right? Like a lot of the discussions that we have here are discussions that get watered down in a group thread instead, yeah. or conversations that you kind of just have with yourself in like a thinking kind of manner that never actually see the light of day. No. And I think the problem with both of those uh, types of scenarios are that it's very vapid whenever you're speaking to a group of peers or friends or, or what have you. And it's not, it's not social like this. It's not face-to-face. -face. Like we're not actually interacting. We don't feel the same emotions. Like there are times that we're riled up here, right? And it's like somebody misspoke, but it's le at least we're able to communicate tone back and forth. And it becomes very clear that one person was out of line or caused a riff or whatever. Like that, that tense moment that you feel is a byproduct of being able to look someone in the face and also hear their tone whenever they're speaking, right? When that happens in text instead, it's always just annoyance. And it's fleeting, right? It's fleeting, it's vapid, it doesn't mean anything. A lot of observe, it, it's just like, it's trying to pit, it's trying to get the group to commit to a side. Right. That, that's literally what the entire back and forth becomes is like, OK, a disruption, a disruptance has occurred. Now, how does the group vote? You know what I mean? And like, I do like the WhatsApp now has votes because like, honestly, that would be the easiest way to solve like all these conversations. The second a, a back and forth starts, just say, OK, group, we've all collectively decided that to be a part of this group chat, when these things occur, you have to vote on who's correct. Honestly, as, as a boomer of the group, can you teach me how to, how to, how uh, to I'll figure out how to do it uh, through WhatsApp. <laughs> but honestly, now that I understand more so that life is definitely lived in the gradient versus lived in the always and nevers, seeing those strongly disagree to strongly agree uh, spec like spectrums yeah. makes so much more sense to me, right? Because sure. otherwise, in like a one-sided poll, there's just the gaslighting. When I sent the video of uh, the girl impersonating like the Miss Universe contestants, yeah. and then like France came up, and then you and Connor just made the poll of like, <laughs> is this funny? And it's like, no, no it's and then absolutely fucking not. <laughs> like no, like no shot, right? Now it's like, all right, this is this isn't as fun to me. I don't like, I don't like, I don't like this one. Sure. We shut that down real right, quick. Right, but if there was like a, a discussion going on, and then there was a poll of like strongly disagree to strongly agree, you then can get some sort of idea of where people are leaning yeah. without actually having to give their full opinion. Yeah, yeah, and I think like doing that ahead of giving the full opinion just saves so much, uh, so much fallout. Yeah, it right? makes conversations easier. Well, a lot because at least then, because what ends up happening is people are waiting for the, for the opinions of others, like others to weigh in, and they're anticipating which way they're going to fall. It's like a civil war. Yeah, so they're anticipating which way they're going to fall. So like, if I already assume that you're going to disagree with me and you write something that's relatively neutral or even slightly in favor of me, I still may read it as you disagreeing with me and being hostile. And I've seen so much miscommunication, specifically in our group alone, but like, I imagine it, it extrapolates out to like any group setting where when you're not looking someone in the face and they can't hear your tone, these miscommunications happen all the time where it's like, it, it happens a lot where I'll have to say like, you know that I was 
on your side in this instance, right? Like I'm agreeing with you. Right. And it's like, oh, I must have misread. And it's yeah. like, well, because you expected me to disagree out of the gate. Yeah. And you didn't misread, right? There was just the lack of overall nuance that well, you just misread the tone. Exactly. Yeah. I don't like your tone. It's like, yeah, well, you're looking at it through one source of text. Because you're creating the tone in your head. Exactly. You read I've been things so the way guilty. you want yeah, to Yeah, I've been them. so guilty of this so many times, uh, like reading something on social media where I'm reading it with a certain uh, tonal slant and they actually meant it in a completely yeah. uh, different way. Right. And it's just like, okay, well, now I I'm guilty. I try to keep conscious of that, of like, of like, okay, we well, don't know the tone. You don't know the tone. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. But it makes, that's why like conversations in person along these lines of, uh, call it the always and never type of polls that can exist naturally mm-hmm. become a lot more civil and you get to some sort of common ground even if that is disagreement but it's not through the sense of just writing heated text messages as fast as you can before uh, someone else gets a word in that's yeah. never great I gotta tell you this was this, that was probably one of our most impressive tangents that came off of Johnny Vibes backing a guy yeah and putting him into an event that Bro, it's <laughs> never ending and it will not stop. Right, yeah. We're good at this. I just realized that... Dude, we're just good at conversation. The conversation That's what the flows. podcast helps with. Right. That's why I love the flows. podcast. Yeah. You get better at mm-hmm. like trying to find yeah. ways to thread conversation. I don't conversation. even know why we do a running show. Just, just turn the... Turn the cameras well, on. Well, Brian, the, re- the reason is because... You're we- saying it's the guy that does the running show every episode. <laughs> we, we need to talk about how to bluff better. Oh, we do. We have to... And you know mm. what? I think you're... Can you teach me how to bluff better? Really? I thought you were going to be the lead instructor this one. I, listen, I just don't get caught. That's all. <laughs> I bluff a lot. Tortoise tips. But you're slow. <laughs> how, does, how does the tortoise not get caught? Tortoise is... This, listen, tortoise isn't slow. The tortoise is just steady. Mm-hmm. maybe a little slow yeah uh i mean i i think that you know let's call it tortoise style if you will a little mm-hmm. gangham style yeah, uh I, I think you were kind of the the impetus for me wanting to to talk about this because obviously you're a winning poker player like i, I think that that throughout your lifetime has been well established mm-hmm. now uh to what degree is a lot more debatable right like and also in what stakes what environments things of that nature but you know in the fucking 21 re one re-entry one add-on like we saw that roi right that's no goddamn joke yeah but the question is do you even bluff bro of course i do have you and even seen betting does yoga? not count <laughs> wait see doesn't count. betting does not count <laughs> i do i, I do bluff yeah see betting doesn't count because you have to see where you're at you know uh, it's not bluffing yeah that, that's a that's a feel bet right mm-hmm. that's a feeler play mm-hmm. listen i don't want to give give away any strategies here but. <laughs> it's not like we have a training site or an academy that's sold out <laughs> uh no honestly i i think i do a lot more um now than i did maybe a year or two years ago yeah just because um just studying more and understanding like before it was just like uh you know i wouldn't bluff as much because i didn't know how right i'm not saying i know how to bluff now but i know how to bluff better now than i did before so i do it more yeah so i I think that that brings us to a good follow-up uh what in your opinion would you say is the toughest hurdle to overcome when it comes to like constructing a bluff range uh or like just put yourself in game i guess right and and just Mm -hmm. think about like your overall strategy not not in a very deep nuanced way but just like you know what feels good right Mm -hmm. feels good to flop top pair and then just figure out your sizings for three streets Uh, what uh, feels bad what feels bad (laughs) yeah about bluffing about strategy intervention yeah yeah Yeah. Uh, (laughs) oh man well because i think he speaks for the everyman yeah it's an intervention on bluffing with brian 
Uh, what feels bad is not knowing uh, what the other person, like what their range looks like, and then just firing and hoping and praying. Yeah, I right? think that that's a really great description so like, of it. Uh, like, like three bet pot, you have ace king comes eight mm -hmm. high. Right. Like three bet pot. Wait, say again. Three bet pot, you have ace king, and it comes eight high. Okay. Uh, eight what? Eight disconnected. So like, yeah, call I mean, it like eight five right. deuce. Okay. Uh, I'm not asking yeah. you what your strategy is. I'm just saying like those are spots that like feel uncomfortable. I mean, they used to. Okay. I, I think they don't anymore because it's like, I I think that like, uh. I don't know. I probably bet more often now in spots where I would check or try to try to like play pot control. Yeah, play pot control, and there like there's there's situations that come up now where I'm like, this is just a clear buff, mm -hmm. right? Or it's like, okay, I land with like seven high on the river, and just like, well, I just have to bluff. Where I there, there's times where it's like, oh, you can't because it's just right. like you just don't have any bluffs or you don't have or it's just like sometimes you just have to get rid of it but there's like a, a lot of times there's like okay i'm just gonna bluff here i'm like mm. and then i bluff and then they fold and you're like okay yeah like obviously like, like could you imagine checking down letting him put 10 high there it's right like ridiculous right? Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah so like i i feel like the more that i that I look at spots or, or study that i the, the the bluffs are becoming more apparent Good. Like it's like okay, well, oh, this is definitely a bluff here, right? And then a bluff, and it works. And so I want to I want to okay. set a little bit of framework as to why I think this conversation is important, mm -hmm. uh, and it's one that we often uh, discuss early at the academy. Uh, having been around for a long time, I, I've seen the evolution of uh, study and like how people are introduced to the game, and it's slowly starting to change, uh, kind of as a byproduct of data and the ability to use software, but. In a very general sense, almost 100% of people's exposure to No Limit Hold'em is learning what beats what and the, the ranking order of what equals good hand versus what equals bad hand, right? So we learn this game strategically through playing it and through following kind of a rule sheet or a crib note, if you will, of... What, what equals the best hand, which is like, you know, roll a flush all the way down to high card, right? Throughout that process, we try to translate what we're witnessing and what we're feeling into English. Now, not really recognizing that uh, what we're witnessing and to some degree, even what we're feeling is mathematics in motion, right? Very few people, I think, enter the game of poker and just recognize that it is uh, a complete numbers game. And I'm not saying that the game distills strictly down to numbers, but I'm saying that the math is the absolute backbone. The, the, the chaotic system that is poker at its undercurrent is all very clear and critical math that needs to be comprehended, at least at a cursory level, right? There's a method to the madness. Yes. Yeah, it's not as chaotic and random as it appears. There's actually like a lot of order. It's just you have to strip away a lot of things before you finally get to the underbelly of just like this is the sequence of how the game is supposed to work and we still barely have uh, a vision over that right but we're starting to understand a little bit better so as a byproduct of not really recognizing that when we're playing this game and we're new we're actually kind of sitting in a calc class uh instead we look at it as like we're sitting in a gym class and we're learning a new fun game and we're gonna try to brain solve it and things of that nature right what ultimately ends up happening is when you convert uh 
like what you're witnessing that's actually very mathematical in nature and technical into English without properly doing the work, you end up just utilizing emotional terms to supplement your lack of understanding of the math. So when it comes to value hands, we call them good. When it comes to bluffs, we call them bad. And we say good hand, bad hand. And we play the game of good hand or bad hand. And what that led to was a misunderstanding of what good and bad actually mean, right? So in the mid 2000s, if you raised King Jack pre and got called and it came queen nine four, the person who called you with nine eight would often check fold because middle pair bad kicker equals bad hand, right? And you're facing a bet. So you were able to get away with murder because of the misqualification or the misunderstanding of the actual underlying math all computed through EV, right? It, it goes beyond that though, right? The term value and bluff are also relatively emotional in nature, right? Value is I'm charging you. I have, I have something that's worth something to me. I'm heavily invested in this thing and I demand top dollar for it from anybody who wants to take it from me, right? Very emotionally charged term. Bluffing, also incredibly emotionally charged. This thing is worthless to me, but I'm lying to you to make you believe that it's worth a lot to me. And I ultimately want you to give up on this endeavor, this exchange that we're having, right? So that I can maintain this worthless thing uh, at, at your expense. What this ultimately leads to now is a misqualification of how hands are supposed to work after the flop, right? You have aces, you get in three bets pre and get called, and then the board comes like nine, eight, six. And you're like, well, I had a value hand. I still have a value hand. And you just start pounding the pot, right? And get called. And then the turn is like an eight. And it's like, okay, I don't really have any eights. He has more eights, whatever, but you bet again and get called. And then the river's like a five. And it's like, fuck, now there's a one-liner. And now all of a sudden, that emotional investment to the hand, in spite of the fact that you lose to a lot of his range, still gets applied to the pot, which ultimately translates now into sunken cost fallacy. So now all of a sudden, we're victimized. And again, I'm talking about like, you know, as you're first starting to understand the game, right? Now all of a sudden, we're, we're victimized by our behavior and our emotions because we're allowing them to be the translator of how the mechanics of this game actually work. Same holds true for a bluff. On the flop, you have a hand like ace-king, right? And you miss. And you're like, well, I'm going to bet and just win. And then you don't. And then the turn comes. Maybe you pick up equity, maybe you don't. But you're like, uh, whatever. Uh, like, this hand is now going to win come hell or high water. Because it was a very good hand to start with. And I'm not going to allow you to outmaneuver me when I have a very good hand. So suddenly, like, you just start rocketing it off and you're utilizing a hand that, like, maybe has no bluffing capabilities to it whatsoever as your triple offer. We see this a lot in the OMC type, right? The old man coffee type that, like, can't find their bluffs to save their lives. Therefore, they just massively underbluff. But every now and again, they lose their goddamn minds. <laughs> and on an 876 board, they just rocket it off with Ace King High. Yeah right? Like we see all of these things happen constantly in the live realm and it's mostly uh, behavioral economics at play. 
where people are emotionally invested in the strategy that they're currently employing. And it's all the byproduct of going back to that hand ranking system, right? So they don't look at five high on the river and say, God, I have a real piece of cheese here that never fucking wins and I just need to go for it. Because in order for them to get to the river with five high, it had to be a hand that carried some equity, right? And when they get to the river, they're almost alleviated of the pressure where they're like, well, I missed. The plan was to make my straight and I didn't. And I faced heavy resistance along the way. So obviously he has better than five high and I don't think he's going to fold now. And they abort, just check down five high. Mm -hmm. Where in all actuality, like this becomes a very natural bluff, right? In the inverse, when they have ace king in that exact same spot, they don't feel that relief when they miss the river. They feel that anxiety of like, I have a hand that's supposed to fucking win and I'm going to do it. Yeah. So they fire it off. And it's just like, you know, you land there. It's like, well, there's a good chance that this hand can just sometimes win without betting. Like every time this bluff works, it's because you had the best hand, right? That type of of thing. People forget the value of ace high sometimes. Exactly. They also forget just uh, hand classes as a whole, or they never learn hand classes as a whole. Um, so I, I kind of wanted to bring this discussion into uh, the hand classes fold now and, you know, lean on our resident uh, child of the sim. Slave of the sim. Slave to the sim. My bad. <laughs> He's been upgraded or downgraded. Uh, I, I want him to kind of, kind of take this from a, a 10,000 foot approach where for the people that I'm describing, the ones that are not slaves to the sims the ones that are slaves to their emotions how can they better understand how to categorically look at value and bluffs when these two terms you know something that i don't think people understand is bluffs don't exist until the river in a technical sense right right? you can't be bluffing the flop you can bet low equity hands right yeah it's very interesting and extremely wholesome listening to the tortoise explain bluffing because it makes me realize from the emotional investment side that there's such, of course, there's a gradient to the ability and things that are true. But the important part when it comes to doing all of the work and stripping down the layers of the game as a whole, like the calculus as a whole, is trying to find the truisms that work for the majority of the situations that you're in, right? Like, Call it the five high have to bluff because you have five high, right? Because there are some nuanced situations where that's actually not the case. And you do give up some hands that can't win because the blocking effect and what you want those cards in your hand to be. You just auto bluff every time you have five high. But if it comes to looking at it from a populist standpoint of not bluffing enough, if somebody says, hey, if you always have five high, just go for it, Right. That will get you closer That's to bluffing. That's better than never bluffing. Exactly, high, right? Course, and then also yeah. what I realize is that when most look at the game as a whole, we as individuals are reactionary, less so uh, we don't plan well, right? We mm-hmm. take things for what they are and right. then deal with them later. Yeah. Yeah. Where it's like, okay, I have a flop decision. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know the global strategy because I don't have that knowledge. I'm now lost. But how do I get out of this lost situation I'm in? And normally some people find it through either playing aggressively 
or passively, right? Because some people will naturally incline on bet bet jamming hands that shouldn't. And some people will just check fold, right? It's just a matter of the nature of your environment and kind of who you are. Because once you have the 10,000 foot approach stripped down and you say, okay, it's not value and bluff. It's not good hand, bad hand. It's high equity, low equity, blocking properties and future street playability, right? And those are some of the mechanics that you can use to then come up with ideas and sizes. Also, when it comes to the range exploration of what does my range look like in theory? What does their range look like in theory? How do I leverage my range appropriately? And not just on this street, but potentially on future other ones that can exist. On the river, there's no more streets left. So now you have to come to the decision of, can my hand win? Yes, no. Does my hand bluff well? Yes, no. Because in a theoretical standpoint, if you have a value bet, you will also have to have bluffs. But if some people have a hard time with knowing where those bluffs come from, and poker is obviously a very hard game and you can't have it all figured out, if you default on a truism of low showdown value hands want to bluff so you can try to steal the pot, maybe you choose a smaller sizing than a bigger one because your hand sucks. That's better than not knowing what to do and just checking because I have a bad hand, I can't win, and I'm over it. Like, he can have this one, right? Yeah. But that's most of the general consensus when it comes to looking at decisions in their instance, not in their entirety. So that's where I'm at with that. <laughs> it was really wholesome because it's like, oh, some hands actually don't bluff because the blocking properties are bad and you have to have some give ups theoretically. And sometimes it's fine to check fold. Yeah. But if you're doing it too much, now you have a problem because right. if you're capping your range in some specific way, it then becomes easier for players that know the theoretical baseline to take advantage of that where they see a spot and they go, oh, this person would always bet if they have a good hand. They checked. They have a bad hand. It doesn't matter what my two cards are anymore. I'm just going to go for it. I think back to all the times throughout my entire career where I probably should have bet the river and didn't, and then would have won, and then how much money has been lost. <laughs> right, and then some time, people will also right? say at the same time, right, if I always folded rivers, I'd be so rich. And practically, the environment allows that to be true in some spots. But as you start getting into the higher levels of gameplay where people realize that bluffing actually makes money in certain nodes because people are underprotected, nothing is zero EV in pure live, either online or live practice. Right. right? No one is perfectly balanced unless they're straight cheating. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. um i i think that i think you touched on a few really good points there we honestly probably should have had the uh should have had what the the bluff catching conversation before the bluffing but maybe not like either way i think next tuesday we do uh bluff catching and the appropriateness like of it because i do agree with that statement of like folding rivers prints money in a lot of spots but also calling in general what prints money in a lot of spots so like also like when I said like, oh yeah, like I'm, you know, I, I'm seeing more spots to bluff, right? Mm -hmm. What that is allowing me is to see players bluffing where they shouldn't be Correct. and being able to call, right? Right. So like now I'm like being able to pick off more bluffs just because I see a bet and I'm like, that's not a bluff. That's not a thing. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't be betting here. Call. Oh yeah. You were bluffing and that was bad. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, uh, I think there are a couple of things that, uh, a couple of like very common 
um, misunderstandings or misnomers that get propagated uh, throughout the throughout the industry, uh, especially live and especially in the unstudied, so to speak. Um, and that's like the notion that uh, I I want to bluff when my opponent doesn't have it, right? A like you're not Nostradamus. Uh, you, you don't have some you don't have some level of clairvoyance where you can know if he does or does not have it. And B, uh, largely speaking, if you're bluffing in spots where your opponent doesn't have it, then uh, there's a good likelihood that the hands you're choosing to bluff with would have just won yeah. anyway. Yeah. Right. The, I see this so so commonly where uh, people will make a bluff that works and then table it. And it, it's so obvious once you see their hand of like, you know that that only works when you actually just had the best hand. Mm -hmm, right. Yeah. Because like the, the candidate that you chose mm -hmm. doesn't interact with the board in a way such that you position your opponent into having both a fold and a fold of better. Right. Right, and like that's that's kind of like the number one indicator when you're on the river of uh, do I want to bet or not is uh, if you're bluffing, can I get better to fold? If the answer is no, then like you don't do it. And when you're value betting, it's can I get worse to call? And when the answer is no, then like you just know that it's too thin. And I'll chime in real quick when someone looks at the statement of can I get better to fold? Sometimes the answer is probably right but if you have second pair in a spot where you just have enough equity not to bluff it you don't right, right? you just don't do that because mm -hmm. now you have a hand that has pot share and value that you're now reducing because you're trying to get top of range for an a player to fold right and the amount of confidence that you need to do to have to make that play is extremely high and hey if you have that confidence sure right where it's like oh i, I try to get this guy to fold a king and i knew my second pair was no good so i did it and then they folded a king it's like oh okay that's a sample in the right direction that like you know where you're at you also appropriately ranged your opponent and also knew, had some sort of ability in knowing what their counter strategy is to yours I think that that's another good point to touch on, and and this is where it begins to get a little bit too nuanced. I think for people who are uh, just new to the concept of value betting versus bluffing. When I say new to, I mean not not that heavily studied. Yeah. Um, but the idea, like Brian said, uh, one of the scary things is not knowing what your opponent's range is. You can always play the game of what would I have if I were in his shoes, right? And that's the easiest way to logically deduce what the shape of his range looks like. That's a very big first step. Yeah. And like and actually. It's it's a very big thought experiment at the start, Correct. right? Because it feels the, overwhelming, right? And yeah. then it becomes habitual, just mm -hmm. like anything else that takes time. Well, yeah, eventually, like you just start looking at the board texture and say, okay, what logical combinations of hands exist, right? If it's a four bet pot and the board comes six five four, are we really all that afraid of seven eight? Right. Of course not, right? Are we even all that afraid of sixes fives or fours? Probably not. So yeah. like you could just begin to understand, like I'm playing a four bet pot. And the way these ranges are constructed is that he probably has a lot of nothing that missed this board and pairs above above the eight. Probably has like a lot of nines are better or eights are better, whatever. Yeah, know? and honestly, even studying MTTs, it's not like I have all of this shit figured out. Poker's a hard game. SPRs are different. Value thresholds are different at certain stack depths. Where some boards, it's like, whoa, out of position has a straight now. I can't bet as much. Where there's a certain stack depths where they... The same card comes in, but you still value bet your hand because it's worth enough, 
right? So there's always nuance and tricks of the trade, so to speak. But the real win rate comes from knowing how to play your opponent's range better than them. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, think, I think as important as that is, uh, that's maybe step three or four in this process that we're, we're speaking to. Right. So, uh, you know, I want to keep having this conversation kind of at the, at the very uh, onslaught of uh, I clearly don't bluff enough, right? Like, because here's the thing. We keep saying if you're a beginner, but the truth of the matter is it's just if you're unstudied in the theoretical realm. There are thousands of you that are listening and thousands of you that are not that play one, two, two, five, five, ten at your local casinos that play five hundred dollar buy in MTTs, uh, you know, one oh nines online, one Ks and things of that nature. There there are tens of thousands of you that think you have a well rounded strategy, but have never actually studied any relative theory. And all of you are playing this mimetic style or approach where you see what the good players in your games do and you mimic those mechanics. So your sizings are actually probably pretty good. Maybe not applicable or uh, applied appropriately, but your sizing matrix, in other words, the sizes that you choose from, are probably actually pretty standardized. Right. Or you're point. close, right? You bet 33 right. instead of 25. Exactly. Who yeah. cares? It, it doesn't matter. You're losing nothing. Right, fine. So your sizings are actually going to be relatively okay. Your frequencies and your hand selections, though, are going to be absolutely atrocious. And what you're ultimately going to find, if I challenge everybody who's listening to this conversation right now, if I challenge you over your next 10 live sessions to write down every single time you river bluffed, I will bet the majority of you will come back with single digit answers. And that's so hard to do over a 2000 hand sample in a live realm, right? Like, I know that's not a huge sample, but still of those 2000 hands, you're going to be playing somewhere in the neighborhood of like 25% of them. Right, so you're you're looking at somewhere in the neighborhood of like what 400, 500 hands, something in that nature, right? And your opportunity to bluff certainly should be above one to five percent, right? Like you're not going to have nuts ninety five percent of the time that you don't. Or well, I guess that's an exaggeration, but you're not going to have nuts the majority of the time that you don't fold. And if you do. What that means is, A, you're probably playing too passively and converting everything to a bluff catcher. And B, you're obviously not bluffing enough. You're not utilizing, either you're too tight pre or you're not utilizing the bad hands in your range to actually win your unfair share of the pot simply through aggressing. Right, and it's such, honestly, bluffing is kind of a loaded term, right? Just in its, in its entirety, right? Because right. if you, like, let's say you're saying, oh, how many times did you river bluff? But also ask the same question of how many times you check raise a turn right yeah how much have you ever check raised a turn you, yeah. i love you because uh you you think you. you think very completely but you're always so many steps ahead right and <laughs> i don't even mean that from like an and like a, a next level standpoint no i know right? i know it's just like if we collectively understand that where everybody on the aggregate is is that they can see bet right? Like that is the only street that has any semblance of balance when it comes to high equity hands and low equity hands. Beyond C betting, there is a massive asymmetry between high equity hands putting money aggressively into the pot and low equity hands folding. Massive asymmetry across the aggregate, right? So the notion that somehow like we're skipping steps uh, from just putting in more money with low equity hands and utilizing those as our quote-unquote bluffs, somehow we're skipping steps and getting into like, you know, being a more aggressive defender and uh, you know, 
uh, finding all these other nuances. It, it's like walk before we run. Like all we want to try to get to is take note of the amount of times where you actually have a low equity hand that goes off for three. Right, because I see the game as a whole in the sense of like not just call it bluffing, right, but playing more aggressively, right? And there's a bunch of different ways you can play more aggressively, but the lowest hanging fruit, so to speak, is bluffing river, mm. right? Yeah, yeah. In relation to finding... Well, it's the turn. most clear cut because we can define bluffing on the end. Right, having no equity on the river and putting in a bet. Exactly. Right. And listen, 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 listen. I am so sorry to interrupt you guys, but I have about a minute, oh my seconds God. left on break. What CSA? We, listen, we, have, we have the CSA king of we have the king right of shit now. regs here for a CSA. Listen, we're down here. We're in Florida right now. This it's popping. You know, nice patch. K, but you know we got the pats on. We're out here living life. All I want to say is, I mean, just don't call river raising. You guys are all right. You know, we'll be all these streets. That's Connie Strap of the week, month, year. See you guys later. Bye, Conrad. This is what we Good jumped life. through hoops to get him in on. Wait, I have a question. Do you guys know that um that there's tournaments down here? Yeah, I'll yeah, be there. We'll be we there tomorrow tonight. morning. Tomorrow morning. Oh, you li you leave tonight? Yes. Well, well, I'm excited to see you guys all. I'm excited. You know, he'd be up back in the podcast. You know, That's have right. some fun with you guys. All right. See you guys later. I got shit to do. I got to work, baby. Good luck, Connie. I'm vetoing all of these CSAs from now until the end of time. That is a man. I'm here for him. That is very clearly a man who has A, not bluffed the river enough, and B, called the river way too fucking much. You don't get a tab without calling the river way too fucking much. As a man who's called the river way too fucking much, I know how hard I've had to work. Blood, sweat, and tears have gone into recouping that money so that I don't have a tab because my river call frequency is way too goddamn. You know hard. what? It's, it's very, it obviously makes so much sense when it comes to like my come up and still Jason come up, if you will. Calling rivers from an online perspective, I've done very, very well. Right, just from knowing detox oh, data yeah, of and all of these things. But that doesn't mean that the rule is set in stone because there's a difference when you're calling river when somebody has the aggressive part of the game tree and they're playing as the three better in a bet bet well, there's just There's just far less asymmetry when it comes to turn and river strategy in, right. in the online realm. You're going to see a lot more low equity hands uh, betting turn online. And even if you don't, They'll take those medium equity hands that were like, you know, combo draws or whatever the case may be, and they'll they'll convert them into bluffs even if they're not the best candidates on the end. Right. Whereas live, it's just kind of like uh, you get there and you missed, and you have a little funeral for the equity that was supposed to be this hand, and now you just chuck it in the fucking muck because we've come too far, uh, or we've come far enough, I should say. Right, and there's just such a difference in. If the population tendency as a whole, call it for live and online, are under bluffing when reclaiming aggression, mm -hmm. right? So like when Conrad said, don't call river check raises, mm -hmm. right? In most cases, that's probably going to be relatively reasonable yeah. up until a certain stake level right. playing yes. uh, live versus extremely talented opponents yeah, yeah. and the online arena. Yeah. Right, of right. course, the higher you get, the, the more... 
check raise bluffs are going to be because they know how to check raise bluff. Right, because people right. as a whole from like, it's a very bottom up approach where people know now that bluffing is a good thing, mm -hmm. right? So they should do it. Like yeah. You should be bluffing. Right? Yeah, I mean, we're out here with a CSA fucking alerting everybody that they need to start firing off. Right. <laughs> and at the same point, there's still so much nuance to that strategy, but getting your feet your fingers wet in bluffing in the first place is, I guess, a good place to start. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so low, start by starting low key. This is this entire, this entire conversation and, and podcast is just an attempt to make my river calls more profitable. So I'm just trying to do Lord's work. <laughs> Not everything's and, altruistic, man. Yeah. Get everybody out there firing a little bit harder on, mm -hmm. on rivers and whatnot. No. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I mean, in the reality, like I, I just want to bring it back full fold or, or uh, back into the fold, I guess of, how much this is a systematic problem of pe how people are introduced to the game. People were introduced online. They they kind of gather the concept of bluffing relatively early, and it's because it's what it what it's what drives them towards data and uh, analytical tools like solvers. Right? People in the live realm see an entire environment that never bluffs. Right? They just like all trade blinds back and forth with whoever has the best hand at showdown, and only those who are deviants that are naturally aggressive and recognize that there's a way to win your unfair share of the pot and it's certainly not by putting money in passively only they then begin to explore this whole other realm of of the bluffing node so to speak right and that's so born out of the fact that in the live venue the way that you learn this game is simply through the rules a bluff is a hand that had high equity at some point in time and now is nothing that's how people you know, the, the term semi-bluff, that doesn't mean fucking anything. <laughs> you want to talk, like, bluffing yeah. truly doesn't even convert into uh, into meaning anything, right? Look at Landis losing his mind. It's just it's like, like semi-bluff. I know, it was a, I know was, the fucking word, but, right. like, this word is so ridiculous. It's like, why would you want to choose a hand that you now have to fold if you get jammed on in a certain spot? Like, what the fuck are we doing? <laughs> why are we doing this? It's real. It's, it's real. bluffing with outs, man. Stop We're it. bluffing with outs. Get some help. Uh, get some help. <laughs> Uh, there was, uh, I, I, I've referenced, take a day off, take a, take a, day off, take a year off, take a year off. Uh, there was, there was a, um, a passage I referenced from, uh, an Ed Miller book where he had a graphic or an illustration that showed like how ranges should morph flop to river based off of value to bluff frequency. And I just like took so much issue with it. And honestly, like it's actually decent advice. Uh, the, the book actually does a fairly good job of like translating terms down into very simplistic notions um but i take such a uh, i take such an issue with it because it's laying the wrong groundwork you're feeding misinformation out of the gate in order to try to get people over the hurdle the emotional hurdle of not having the courage to bluff and like this illustration basically said like on the flop uh you'll have like two bluffs for every value hand and then on the turn you'll have like one bluff for every value hand and then on the river you'll have like two value combos to every bluff and it's like, this is all, first of all, like, what are we qualifying as a bluff on flop and turn? And then secondly, that's only true on the river for betting pot. Like, what if we bet 3x pot? Then we get to have one value combo for every bluff that we have. What if we bet quarter pot? Then we need to have like six value combos to every bluff that we have. Like, it's not that clean that we can just say like, do X, Y, and Z, and you'll suddenly become uh, a, a very well-rounded player. That's not how the game works. The game's it's, too fucking difficult. It's too hard. You have to think about X, Y, and Z. Just think about 
What are my good hands? What are my bad hands? Compartmentalize them. Put them in hand classes. These are the best hands that I could possess. These are the middling hands that I could possess. These are the worst hands that I could possess. Do the worst hands that I possess have any intrinsic value if we see turns in rivers? When the answer is yes, you found your bluffs, right? You categorically have found your bluffs. They're going to be gut shots. They're going to be over cards. They're going to be backdoor flush draws, things of that nature. You're going to utilize those properties to allow you to fire off when textures change turn and river right i just don't understand where the community collectively under tries to understand that a game that is so nuanced and difficult is just easy that's not fair that's not fair because you came into it in chapter 22 of a uh, hundred chapter book but you never thought poker was easy i never thought poker was easy but i thought it was easier than a nine to five that's a, that's a different story. That's a different conversation. Okay. I meant okay, just fine. people seeing poker as a whole. Like, oh, poker's easy. We thought poker was easy when we first started playing. Because we would win all the time. If it was, were, the like, games were easier. It was, right, The exactly. games were so much easier. And so we were just like, okay, this is this game is easy. I'm I'm leaps and bounds ahead of my competition. Right. What you have to understand is if you think, that the, if you think of this as the never-ending story, so to speak. Chapter have one you ever seen the never-ending story? I get the idea. Great movie, man. Just a great movie. But chapter one, as it was written. How would you know? It's supposed to never end. Just don't worry about it. <laughs> a That's not a dad joke. Uh, chapter one. Okay. No, I don't remember that because I think my mom wanted to name one of us one of the, the people. Oh, Trey is a fire name. Mm. Uh, Imagine if his, if we were, I was sitting next to a Treyu right now. <laughs> oh my Treyu God. Tice? Very, very fitting. Very Chad-like, if you will. Uh, but born like chapter this. one, as it was written, uh, would have been like the, the Doyle age, right? Where, oh man, when the horse dies, come on, Guapo, how are you going to do Why this to me? Why would you do, yeah. Sorry, Fucking boys. bawled my oh, eyes out at this. This like, was man. the best scene. Uh, it, it's so mm. sad. He's just it's in quicksand. Quick he can't do anything. The horse nope. is neighing. Yep. Like, how do you, how do you put that kind of, how are you going to put that pain on a fucking 10 year old? That's a horse with a hundred K in makeup. You just got to let him go. He's just staring into his eyes going, come on, man. Come on, get out. Just knowing he's about to sink to his death. I can't. I just can't. What a terrible fucking scene. Why would they do that? Atreyu is the backer in this instance. It, it, it's, it's such a weird <laughs> movie. <laughs> this is so he's six figures in makeup back. and you're like, please, please go play the 3500 in Florida. I'm not leaving Vegas. Landon really is the meme lord. Uh, Listen, man, I do it for me. I understand. But chapter one, as it's written, was the, the Doyle Brunson era where it's just wits and wagers, right? Like, I'm going to outwit this guy Come hell or high water, even if it means like having a, a 38 special on the table and <laughs> leaving with the money one way or another, right? And then like as it evolves, like you get into the middling chapters, call it like chapter eight where or chapter seven where the boom begins to emerge. And now we start to see that like, okay, there are thinking players, like there are mm -hmm. computer scientists and physicists who are coming in here and they have a linear brain and they're applying certain logical uh, lines of thinking to the way that they play. Well, logically that didn't make sense. You weren't telling a story that was believable, sir. So you must have been bluffing because we're humans and we're fallible. And when we lie, it's easily, it's not easily detected, but it's detectable, right? You know, you can't just be, you can't just be claiming that you're brand new to the game and playing 5k, 10k, no limit with a minimum million dollar buy-in. And then suddenly <laughs> like needing backing for a 1k, like that logically that's not a story that i buy sense. fuck right? you berkey <laughs> you the clip that's not a story that that is believable right so you're bluffing i call that obvious bluff and that that was like how the the early quarter chapters were being written that's how we 
deduced how this game worked. Otherwise, if we knew that somebody wasn't bluffing, then we just went to the hand rankings. Like, okay, I have the seventh nuts. What's the probability that he is worse than the seven nuts? Seventh nuts or has the sixth nuts are better, right? And that's where like all the nitty folds started to come in. Like, bro, you would you would be sick at the amount of times I've seen the second nuts folded to one bet. You'd be uh, sick. Yeah. And how often it's fucking correct. Like <laughs> Right, you're sick for yeah. the person that's betting. Yeah. For the person that's Yeah, folded. because it's like they did it against a sick nit who has the discipline to look at King Queen of Spades and go, Guess you have the nut flush, buddy. I mean, what else could you have? I have the king and the queen of spades. You must have the ace and the deuce of spades. Fold, face up. And the guy's just like, how, how, how the fuck guy do you do Guy's sitting there with the ace, deuce of spades. Yeah, he's, he's just like, like how the fuck do you do it, it, right? And that's where like the Negranu era comes out where they, like, he's literally putting people on fucking hands. Yeah. That happened because nobody understood conceptually how to balance themselves. They were so asymmetric to the value hands and lacking in the bluffing aspect that he could logically deduce down to the suit sometimes. Well, I think you have this. Right. And, and just be fucking right. And most yeah. of the time, he would guess a value hand because that's the way the population of plays. Of course, of course. Right? It's never, he's, not, not a slight, right? No, I understand. But it's yeah. like, he's not saying, oh, like you probably have like King of Spades Jack or something. But now, from a theoretical standpoint, looking at the game in this new era, it's like, oh, okay, I know where the bluffs come from. So if you're bluffing, you have something like this. Exactly. So... Now the next evolution becomes the training training sites era, the card runners, the blue fire poker that eventually became run at once, right? Now all of a sudden, this this young up and coming collective who's looking at the game a little bit differently, looking at the game a little bit more analytically, trying to understand a little bit better where they can start to carve out more money. Now all of a sudden we start to have a discussion about laggy play about loose aggressive, right? How can I VPIP higher? How can I play more hands? Which entails I'll be naturally bluffing more often, right? And this is the start of toy games. This is the beginning of toy games. This is the height of the Mormons of the world, the Jockas, uh, the guys like me. Sauce? You're not yet. Sauce would be like the very next iteration where he takes what we were all doing, taking a, a hammer to a nail, and he turns it into... Uh, art basically yeah. right because we all took the hammer nail approach it was like i'm just going to be the most aggressive guy in the fucking field and we over bluffed our faces off to become rich and then suddenly guys like sauce came along and said hold up yeah he became a blacksmith you don't just get to do yeah. that like you can't just be out here all willy-nilly saying like <laughs> i'm always betting three streets and i'm gonna play a bental uh, bend but don't break type of, of style, right? And that was literally all you, not all you need to do, but the best players in the game were doing that. Like they, the best players were guys like uh, a guy like G-Man back then, or even like now to some degree, you, you had a certain understanding of when to let your foot off the gas. The best players were the ones that were completely unrelenting until it was appropriate. Right, so, the environment, it's almost like the best players in the industry understand and how to adapt to their environment first correct right so like in this instance that's what are sets playing, the strategy right where people are playing hammer to nail approach sauce comes in as the blacksmith and says you know what i'm gonna start checking really good hands and mm -hmm. let them do their thing right and then after x amount of time people realize oh shit protecting a range is important right and not capping yourself in exactly. some spots is important and the first evolution of gto looked like that it was very passive it was very defensive in nature right it was a lot of checking back flop with top pair in order to get two big streets later because 
the second you check back, that hand is or that range is capped, even though capped wasn't really a, a known uh, piece of terminology yet. It was only like known by the elite, so yeah. to speak. And then yeah, yeah. Maybe it wasn't we didn't even term. know the term, right? Exactly. We just knew term. it was inherent. Yeah, you just yeah. didn't have good hands, right? Right. Then now we enter like chapter twenty, where you come in. Right. And that's where Welcome, bankruptcy. Right. <laughs> no, but that's where like all of the actual theoretical uh, understanding and conversations begin to blossom. So that's like your first entry point. So when I say like it's not fair to, it's not even fair for me to like, I'm, I'm not calling Ed out, by the way. Like no, I think he's written a lot of great strategy throughout. It, it's just, it, it's a sore, sore spot to me because uh, strategy moves so fast, it's difficult to go back to a book written in like 2015. And say like, oh, I read this great thing that says like, I should have this ratio on the flop, turn, and river, right? Yeah. Uh, it, it may have even made sense for when he wrote it because he's writing it during a time frame that is like chapter 12 yeah. in the endless iterations of this uh, novel that we're writing that is poker. When Landon comes in in chapter 20, you can't look back at the previous 19 and say you're all idiots. Right. And... It's true, you know, because that's how knowledge works in any field, right? Just with more time. Even more... science just in general, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, now when you look at the game, there's stuff that people said in the past that's just empirically incorrect or worded incorrectly and things along those lines. But it doesn't mean that it wasn't groundbreaking at the time, right? right. You don't look back and want to like call it super, even super system, where it's mm -hmm. like me now call it formally removed from this conversation would think, oh, of course, like super systems garbage, right? But now looking at it, it's like, this is the best thing that people had at the time, mm -hmm. yeah. right? This is, it's a groundbreaking piece of knowledge where you can't just shirk it because you're coming in from this standpoint of, I have the answers. Right. The answers being this theoretical knowledge because call it chapter 30, X amount of years down the line, who knows how fast it's going to be based off of science, computing power, and money behind putting stuff into poker, right? Like we saw that when Doug played uh, Daniel, like there was an AI for heads up. Like that's a massive tool that wasn't made for heads up strategy right. way back when, right. or yeah. even when Doug was playing in his prime, so to speak. Yeah. So now like who knows how fast poker is going to grow and learn but you're seeing it at the top very quickly when it comes to icm theoretical concepts along those lines and seeing people play more like the machine where if you were to play that way in 1990 you might just get shot at the table right <laughs> yeah yeah i think that um yeah i think that we do a poor job of uh kind of highlighting the evolution as a whole we're also wrapped up in what's going on right now that uh, we want to keep the conversation on point. But the problem is, uh, I, I think in our industry more so than anywhere else, uh, and maybe this goes back to the original conversation of like, why does the history matter? Because the entry point is the same, and it's always been the same, and it will always be the same, the way people get interested in this game is uh, very much hands-on. And because of that, they're basically learning off of the rules that come with the pack of cards. Since that's always going to be the case, history is bound to repeat itself strategically, right? And what you end up with is a large collection of people who never stand a chance because they entered the study realm through the improper lens, right? Right. You just came into poker at the wrong time for the amount of involvement or energy you want to put into it. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, like you can't survive without this base layer of knowledge and you're looking at it way over here through a book that was written 15 years ago and doesn't really have a single concept that's relevant today 
Right. It's like if you were to just place a random person into the poker industry and you gave them pile solver versus super system and they had the same work ethic, mm -hmm. those two trajectories are going to be way different. Very different. Very, very, very different. Uh, possible that they can land at the same point with the, or with a comparable ceiling. But the time it would take might be a little Well, the time it would take too. would be different, but it would also just have to be a very specific individual. Like they would have to read super system and be inspired to then fall into like data analysis. Right. You would then have to take more steps. Right. Yeah. yeah. Now yeah. it's like, okay, you have these things. Here's your answer. And there's already a big filtering process that took place because a lot of people will never graduate beyond those concepts. Right. I remember the first time I looked at Pio and I thought this was the scariest thing in the world. I was like, what the fuck? It's overwhelming. <laughs> I was like, how do you even, how do you even run anything? <laughs> and then I look at, uh, like people ask me like how do I to get better with solves. I'm like, honestly, you start by starting, you start by trying. Cause I look back at Sims that I used to run a couple years ago when I was playing cash only. And those Sims were fucking garbage. And I'm sure I'm going to look back at the Sims that I run now and think, man, these Sims are also fucking garbage. But that's part of getting better. Yeah. And mm -hmm. it's part of leading towards wanting to be someone uh, that does provide some value back to the community that's given me so much. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think it's going to put a button on our strat chat for this week. Next week, we're going to talk about bluff catching and why you should call less on the river. <laughs> and why you shouldn't be doing it. <laughs> uh, yeah, why you shouldn't be doing it. Uh, we had a few other light topics that we were going to discuss but i think i'm going to save those for tomorrow give yeah. them the proper attention that they deserve exactly. we are headed out of here we're going to pack up the shop get on the road coming to you live from florida tomorrow we're going to be there for the seminal hard rock main event then a few days or about a week later we're going to ship off to bahamas we're going to be there for the pca main and then we're going to be partnering with uh, poker.org to bring to you coverage of the pspc uh 25k from Baja Mar. So be sure to stay tuned. We got a lot of shows lined up. We're going to be joined by uh, the one and only Sarah Herring on the, on the latter end of the trip. Um, don't forget that we do have new Academy dates that are up right now. If you're interested in that, uh, that will be March 20th through the 23rd. Head over to academy.solferwide.io. Oh, I fixed that Very shit. Nice. I'm on top of it, man. I'm a CEO. Right. What I do, I make graphics. Uh, <laughs> a good looking fucking graphic too. Graphic, right? lighting, you know, you do it all. Graphic oh, look, Lord. there's Johnny. Look at Johnny. Um, so yeah, if you guys are interested in attending uh, Poker Out Loud Academy, uh, we are running that March 20th through the 23rd. It might be, I haven't decided yet, but there's a strong probability that it's the last Poker Out Loud Academy we do this year. Um, I'm heavily considering going back to the old format and then just running one poker out loud academy per year uh just seems like it's more conducive uh to a learning environment but uh, again i haven't made any hard decisions yet but bear that in mind if you're on the fence um we will also be uh continually updating our uh, our product on sulfurwide.tv or sorry.io uh we're actually dark next monday which is supposed to be an on second thought. Uh, we're going to be dark on that Monday because of all the travel that's coming up. Uh, it, it just kind of like created a backlog uh, in our editing. Uh, so the next piece of content that will come out will be on second thought one week from next Monday. And then following that, Matt Hunt is going to be releasing um, a three-part redo of the primer course. So the first four episodes are going to come out somewhere around uh, end of January, first week of February. Uh, he'll be releasing eight more episodes of that course thereafter. So stay tuned. 
If you're not already, head over to our Discord. Be sure to join that group. You'll get a lot more updates there uh, as well as keep the conversation going as far as how do you approach bluffing and do you bluff enough? Actually, everybody go to our Discord and join and then log your next 10 sessions as I've asked and tell me how many times you triple barreled or bluffed the river. I want to know what these, what these counts are. Please like, comment, subscribe. Let us know the best bluff that you ran in the last 12 months. I'm excited to hear this conversation. Continue in our comments. Uh, we will be back. I think we're going to try to do a later show tomorrow because we're all off. So it'll probably be somewhere around 1 or 2 p.m. Pacific. But we're going to be on East Coast time moving forward. So the show is going to naturally be earlier for those of you on the West. Stay tuned for time updates. Follow us on uh, social media at TV or at OnlyFriendsPod uh, to get more updates there. And we'll see you guys all tomorrow. See you at the beach.